Well, I'm really excited that all of you are here today as we start this new series we're calling The Leveraged Life. Um, Here's my hope for this series. My hope is that many of you will have your picture of how God could use you specifically, you and your life and all you have in your life. I want to take that picture and blow it up so much bigger. I want it to be enlarged. I want some of you uh, to engage more with God's plan in your life, maybe more than you ever have. I want some of you maybe to engage into God's plan and see how he could use you for the first time ever. Because one thing is true, and it's that I think a lot of us miss that God just in many ways wants us to be who we are. God has made us a certain way to, with gifts and talents and abilities, and he wants us to use those things. He doesn't want us to try to be like somebody else who can do certain things better than you. God wants us to be us and to use what he has given us for his good and his glory. And so far too often, we don't truly appreciate the value of who God has made us to be. Um, one thing that's been true of my life I mean, from the earliest age, is that I have always been a nerd. Just always like Star Wars, Star Trek. I used to watch a show called Stargate. So if you put star in the title, I'm probably going to watch it. Um, I have always been a computer guy. I mean, my dad got a computer for me when I was in like sixth grade, and it didn't even have Windows on it yet. Anybody remember DOS? Yeah, and you had to type everything. It's like, Windows, what are those? You know, you got to type it in. If you don't know where you're going, you're just out of luck, you know. Um, I had that, and um, I've always enjoyed any movie that was sci-fi, superhero, or fantasy movies. Um, And so that was just, that's always been a part of my personality and who I was. But one thing I learned in high school and college was that showing that part of my personality did not help me at all with the ladies. (laughs) It was hard, you know, to be talking about computers. It was hard to talk about Ninja Turtles. It was hard to talk about how cool the Flash was and what you would do if you were that fast and have a girl go, wow, you are so cool. Not a lot of that going around. And so didn't help. So I just kind of decided that part, I guess, is just for me. So, you know, at the end of the day, I go home and I watch a movie. I can watch all those nerdy things and, and indulge that. But when I'm, you know, at school around people, just kind of take that part of my personality and put it on the back burner for a while. And then I go to school at Lincoln Christian College, now university. And one night I find myself talking to a girl named Abby. And Abby, it was very evident, was just as nerdy as I was, if not more so. And the word, nerdy is the word. And so if she, um, she starts talking about how much she loves Lord of the Rings. And those movies were huge about the time I was you know, in college. And, and then I realized she's not talking about the movies. She's talking about the books. Like she's, she's that hardcore. She's read like the Lord of the Rings that you know, is like so heavy that it could you know, collapse a house if you threw it on it. You know, she's read the whole thing multiple times. And, and she's such a nerd. And so as she's talking about this and tells me how much she loves the books and the movies, I decide to throw caution into the wind. And I decided to, you know, bring out that often hidden side of my personality. And in a coffee shop at Lincoln, in around, where there was a lot of people around, they weren't really looking at me, but I, did, I sang to her in a public place one of the songs that one of the hobbits sings in the third Lord of the Rings movie. And, if, and I'm not proud of it, okay, uh, for one. <laughs> I don't rec, like, this isn't a how-to dating lesson, so please do not. This won't work for you. Very, very rare circumstance that I was tapping into here. But it worked for her. 
me being me helped, okay? And the rest is history. We've been married and for years, and, and, and it's great, and, you know, it worked out well. But I remember as I was doing this, I thought, this is the dumbest thing ever, but I think it's working, you know? I remember that. This is really weird, because my experience at that point had taught me that it would not. Now, again, this is not a series on my dating history or how to date or anything. It's a series on you being you, on how we can be who we are, the the person that God made us to be, so that we can leverage that life in the best possible way for his good and his glory. So I think, you know, what if you could, what if God made you specifically the way you are for a reason? Like, what what if he gave you the passions that he gave you for a reason? What if you could use your love of baseball in some way, shape, or form for the good of Christ? What if you could use a little bit of that pretzel pride that you have, or Scotty pride, or wherever you might be from, okay, whatever school, I'm not excluding here, Um, but what if you could use that pride for your school and for the students in that school to reach more of those students for Christ? What if God has given you all those things that you're good at? Maybe it's like woodworking. Maybe you're like super organized and your husband thinks it's a problem, but you're just, but you could use that for the good of Christ. Or maybe it's, you're, you're a good host and you're great at like putting on events or getting your house in such a way where people could come in and you can receive them well and take care of them. Whatever your gifts are, what if you have those things for a reason? And God has placed you where you are in life to be who you are and to leverage those gifts, those skills, and those passions for his church, for his cause, for his mission in the world. And so that's what we're going to talk about in this series. And I really want to encourage you, every single one of you, to just kind of open your life, open your hands, open your heart to God and say, God, here I am. How can I use my one and only life for your good? How can I use my one and only life to reach more people for your good name? And so we're going to ask a really simple question throughout this series. And it's a question that I want you to ask yourself. It's a question I ask myself, and it really is. It really is a life-changing question if you take it seriously and you answer it seriously. And So here's our question. What will you do with what God's given to you? And I don't just mean like, money stuff, okay, that's what, a lot of times when we talk about God has given you stuff, usually we instantly think money, bank accounts, oh no, the preacher's after my wallet, whatever, Uh, but what we really are talking about, God's given you way more than just those kinds of resources, you have all kinds of time, you have uh, gifts, talents, abilities, and all that stuff that we've been talking about, so what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the life that God has given you? What are you going to do with the skills that God has given you? And even if maybe money falls into this category, yes, what are you going to do with what God has given to you. And so as we begin talking about how we can leverage our one and only life for the good of others and the glory of God, uh, I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament that probably many of you don't know, okay? Um, I did pop in in one of our growth groups this morning that Eric was teaching, and they were like really hovering around this place we were covering. So some of you might have heard about a little bit of this this morning. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 31, If you got a Bible, great, Uh, grab it. If you don't have one, if you grab one of those pew Bibles, uh, we'll be on page 71 in the black pew Bibles, or the words will be on the screen here of those verses. And this is one of those stories that there's a big picture going on, and then we kind of get little details along the way that I think for so long, I've been so caught up in the big picture of what's going on that I've missed a few of these details. And I've read this story, I'm sure, a bunch of times, but I never noticed 
what I'm going to share with you today, or the people that I'm going to share with you today. So a little bit of background, okay? Um, we're only on page 78, again, in the Black Pew Bible, so not a lot's happened. Not real far into the Bible, okay? So basically where we are is God has this group of people, this uh, ethnic group, this uh, cultural group of people that we call the nation of Israel, and they have been slaves. They've been a slave nation, a slave people in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God picks a guy named Moses. Most people know Moses, and Moses kind of leads the charge with his brother Aaron to free those people from slavery, and then he promises that they are going to take them to this special piece of real estate that they would be there. So not only would they be a big, large people, but they would have a place, a nation to call their own. And so they're moving from one place to another. They're not in Egypt, and they're not in the promised land. They're kind of at this in-between stage, and uh, they're in a desert that is just like you would imagine a desert to be. There's a whole lot of brown on every side, and mountains, and hard rock, and maybe some dry bushes, but there's just not a lot to see in the in-between space where they are. And God tells them to kind of stop in this in-between state, and God decides he is going to lay out for them some regulations for how these people are going to be in a relationship with him. He says, here's how you and I are going to interact, and he tells them to build some stuff. The first is a place where God will meet them. When they go to meet with God and have a relationship with God and have their sins forgiven, they would go to this place that's called the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting. So it's just a it's a tent. And then he says, and we're going to put some stuff in that tabernacle. And he, and he starts laying out all this furniture that goes in there, lampstands and whatnot. And one of the things he wants to go in that tent is a, what we call the Ark of the Covenant. Now, many people, I, in fact, I would probably say most people, are more familiar with the Ark of the Covenant thanks to Indiana Jones than the Bible. And so maybe when I say Ark of the Covenant, the only thing you think of is Nazis' faces melting off and lightning shooting out, going through the Nazis, and that's fine, okay? But you need to understand that little thing in that movie, uh, that, that box, that gold box, that was a real thing, but that's just a fantastic, fake, fictional story about a real thing that was in the Bible. And, and so they would use these things in very specific ways to interact with God. And this was going to be a big deal. Making this tent, making this Ark of the Covenant, and all the other stuff that goes along with it, this would shape the way people worship God and interacted with Him for generations and generations, for hundreds if not thousands of years. This would be how people interacted with their God. This was huge in terms of significance. And then one thing that we don't often think about when you think of something like the Ark of the Covenant is that at some point, somebody had to build that stuff. Like, the ark didn't just drop out of the sky. Okay, heaven didn't just open up in this tent land. He says, okay, here's what I want. You guys now go make it. All right, and so that's where our story is going to pick up. We're going to talk about the people who made these major things that were used in uh, the worship of God. Exodus 31, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And so, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the first person God kind of picks to help build all this stuff is Bezalel. And you all know Bezalel, right? <laughs> Do you, I mean, you know him, you know his story, you know how old he lived, you know his kids' names, right? You got it all memorized, right? Yeah, nobody does. Nobody knows Bezalel. He pulls this guy just kind of out of the crowd named Bezalel. And what the, the most important thing you need to know about Bezalel is that he's not Moses. You see, up until this point, the only person you really see doing major things in the story is Moses. 
and occasionally his brother Aaron. And, and Bezalel is not either one of those guys. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, Moses, thanks for all the great things you've done. Thanks for getting people out of Egypt. Thanks for splitting the Red Sea and all that stuff. But you know what? I got other people who can do stuff too. One of those guys is Bezalel. Okay, so God didn't pick Moses, who'd done all the stuff. He didn't pick any of the, the guys who were the religious leaders who were going to, you know, oversee and use this temple or this tabernacle. He picks Bezalel, the guy that nobody even knows. So what's so special about Bezalel? Verse 2, he says, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. So you see, Bezalel's kind of that jack-of-all-trades guy. Um, some of you are that, and I'm a little bitter to this day. My dad is like that, and somehow I just didn't get any of it. Me and my brother, we can't fix anything, and so I know, I think you stand for guys are in, my, in that boat too, yeah. Eric, Rick can do everything. Eric jokes that he can do nothing. I don't know where you stand on that. Yeah, okay, yeah, Matt, that's what I thought, yeah. So there's a few of us in the room. That can, so Bezalel is that jack-of-all-trades guy. He can cut wood. He can make these beautiful things out of gold and silver, line them with precious jewels. He, he can make artistic things. He could build buildings. He could do kind of everything that you would want to do for this project. But did you notice what the first thing God says about him? The first thing God says about Bezalel, for those of you that have a Bible open, is what? He will be filled with the Spirit of God. Now that's really something you don't see a lot in the Old Testament. This is one of the first times actually we see in the Bible of somebody being indwelt with the Spirit. And I like that because it's God saying, this guy's qualified more so, not because of all the skills he has, but because he's the one I've chosen. I have shaped him and made him for this. This is my guy for this job. I have gifted him, and I've placed him for this work. And the reason it's important for us to, to, to pay attention to the, the number one qualifier being that he's filled with the Holy Spirit is because in the New Testament age, which we live in, as Christians, one of the defining marks of being a Christian is that God gives us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to dwell in us, to help us make uh, decisions to leave behind our old sinful life and to walk the life uh, that he would have for us, a life, a life away from sin and toward living like Jesus, all right? And again, why that's important here is that I think so many people, when they interact with church, they feel unqualified to be used by God. Some people come to church and they're not Christians, and they just look around and think, I'm not even qualified to be here. God would never accept me. I got a whole past full of stuff, and God would never want me to, to be a part of this because I'm not qualified. Well, God, <coughs> excuse me. God gives one qualifier here as to why we can fit in, as to why those of us who are a mess, why those of us who have a long, rough history can come in and be a part of his plan, and it's his spirit. It's not because we are awesome. It's not because we're so great and we make all the right decisions. The first thing that changes us is the spirit of God, and the number one qualifier for Bezalel to come into this work of God is that he's filled with the spirit. So it doesn't matter where we are or how far we've gone. We, as Christians, if we're filled with the spirit, God's ready to use us. He's ready. He's got a place for us. Now, one thing that is interesting, and I, I skipped it reading it, because I've, been, I've actually been reading through Exodus recently, 
And when, they, when it gets to the part where God says, here's the temple I want you to make, and here's all the stuff that goes in the temple, and it go, he goes into like so much detail, and it's, here's all these little parts, and you need 14 of these and 20 of those, and everything's got to be measured this way and this way, and it's the most incredibly boring thing to read. It took me weeks to get through that part, and it's not even a huge part of the Bible. It was just, I'd read it, and like everybody else, my eyes would just force themselves shut because it's just little tiny details, and it's like we don't have a tabernacle, so I don't really see how it applies, you know. But what I take away from that is this work that God had given them, it's a big job. There's a lot of stuff that has to be done very precisely. It's a huge, huge job. It is a job that is far, far bigger than any one person could possibly do. And that's the way God's vision always is. It's never something that's meant to be carried by one person. And so he pulls Bezalel out first, but Bezalel can't do all this work alone. I don't care how skilled he is. And so we go on, verse 6. It says, And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of whoever. I'm not even going to try that one. Of the tribe of Dan. Does that make you feel better that I can't pronounce those either? Good. Okay. I went to Bible college and I can't say Hissamach uh, or whatever. Oh, man, it sounds like I'm slurring. Um, ha, ha, he says, and I have given to all able men, meaning there's a group of people, several people who are skilled to bring this about, ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark, the, the, the ark of the testimony or ark of the covenant and the mercy seat that is on it. If you've seen ark of the, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, they got that, there's the lid, basically, for the Ark of the Covenant with the angels and their wings almost touching. That's the, the mercy seat and all the furnishings, he says, of the tent. So God never intends this to be a one-man job. God never intends, you know, the, the temple or the tabernacle and everything to get finished, and Bezalel's the guy that can walk up and sign his name on it and go, look at all I've done, because God doesn't want him to carry this huge job all by himself. So he gathers for him a team of people, and the church is the same way. God never set this up to be a one person or a few people doing the things. That's the way a lot of churches are set up. Um, there's, I've been watching one of those classes on that Faith Life TV, if you guys have signed up for that. And this guy is going through all of the bad ways churches tend to organize themselves. And one of the natural things is we, they kind of organize themselves around the guy who's on the stage, which in this case is me. And they kind of think, this guy knows more, does more, is more holy, and the only, only pastoral things can come from the guy who's on the stage. And that's just not true. And you don't see that anywhere in the New Testament when you talk about the church. It's the, the work of ministry is always everybody. This is a mission and a shared job. Reaching the world for Christ is not my job. It is our job as a congregation. And that is one of the most powerful things because Groups of people who are all working for the mission of God, who are all deciding, God, how can I be leveraged? Use me in any way possible. People who have their hearts and arms open for God together can do some powerful, powerful things, much more than any one person could ever accomplish on their own. And so God starts to put together this team. But here's the thing. Remember, where are they? You know it's not in the desert a lot? Piles of gold sitting around, bunches of silver, and uh, there's no trees to build from. I mean, all the things they need to make this temple, there is like none of it. And so they have all these guys that can do it, but none of the stuff to do it with. And so Moses just kind of goes out, and he puts this call out, and he says, 
To everyone who's generous and everyone who gets stirred in their heart by God, I want you to bring us what we need to build this. We need gold, we need jewels, we need wood, we need all the stuff. Bring it in, donate it for the cause of, of the mission of God. And so now it's even bigger because it's not just Aholiab and Bezalel and these other people who are working on their team to build it. Now he's put the call out to all the people saying, if you can't swing a hammer, you can, you can maybe give and fund what's going on here to make it work. And what happens in, in this story, we're going to jump down to uh, page or chapter 36 of Exodus, which in the Black Pew Bibles is page 76. But what happens here, I want you to pay attention to this, is something that never, ever happens. Like, this is the most crazy thing ever. And if you've ever been in a situation, like for a company you needed to raise some money, uh, if you've ever, okay, been a Girl Scout trying to sell enough cookies, if you've ever been in grade school and you had to sell candy bars for a trip, okay, have I got everybody? Maybe not, but if you've ever had to raise money for something, you're going to be blown away by what happens in, the, in uh, chapter 36. We'll start in verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill. Everyone whose heart was stirred him came up, or uh, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. So people start bringing stuff to build this tent. And they kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task for the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses. So people are bringing stuff saying, here's more gold, here's more wood, here's more precious gems and whatever. And, and so finally, they stop what they're doing and they go to Moses. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command. And a word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. The people just got so behind the vision of God. They so wanted to see God accomplish and be a part of what God was accomplishing. That they brought and brought and brought and brought and brought and brought and brought until they finally said, whoa, stop the giving. Too much. That's like if we passed the plates on an offering and the guys were like trying to hold all the money in and the checks in because there's just too much. And we think, oh, guys, we're never going to be able to give all this away to ministries and missions. Oh, we got way more than we need to pay the bills. And we have to trade out our offering plates for, for gallon, or five-gallon buckets. And then they still keep overflowing. And it's like, oh, stop it with all the money. This is too much. That, that has never happened in the history of any fundraiser ever, ever. It just has, that just doesn't happen. But what it does show us is what can happen when God puts a vision forth and all of God's people get around it. There's nothing we can't do when we are on fire to accomplish what God wants us to do. When we see the way that God could use our life and what he's given us, whether it is our skills or whether it is our money or whether it is our passions or whatever it might be, it is amazing what God can do when we, again, say, what do you want to do with my life, God? How are you going to leverage? How can you help me leverage this one and only life for your good and your glory? Now, one of the coolest parts of the story after all this is done is that Bezalel and Aholiab and everyone else involved go away. And you never, you never hear about them again. 
Their names aren't anywhere else in the New Testament or Old Testament. They just kind of drift off and get lost in the annals of history. And you might say, why is that cool? It's because it shows us that they were just regular people like you and me who stepped up to do the work of God. And when they had done their work, when they had accomplished their work, that God called them out for this vision, they went back to their normal, everyday lives. They weren't superstars. They weren't Moses. They weren't the priests. They were regular people like you and me who were willing to be used by God. And so I want to ask you our question again. What will you do with what God has given to you? What will you do with what God has given to you? Because again, there's really no difference between their story and ours. Yes, we're not in a desert. Yes, we're not being asked to build the Ark of the Covenant that will melt Nazis' faces. We are not, which, by the way, that's not in the Bible. Nazis not in the Bible. Melting faces, I don't think that's in the Bible. There's a few weird things in the Bible, but I don't think melting faces is in the Bible, okay? But still, we're not, we're not in their exact situation, but we have a calling. This great commission that God has given us, go into all nations, and teaching people to be disciples, teaching them everything that Jesus commanded us to teach, and we baptize people into his good name and into his salvation. We have a powerful, powerful mission that he has given us as a church. And what happens if we all just kind of say, God, I don't know what my part is in this, but whatever it is, however you've made me, here I am. Here's my life for your good and your glory. And so I just was trying to think, what are some ways that maybe we could get involved? And, and I want to just toss out a few things, and, and this isn't a comprehensive list. This is just a few things that I see coming up that I'm uh, getting a little excited about. And the first is Easter. I get excited about Easter every year, by the way, because there are only a few times, I said this at Christmas, but there are only a few times every year when our cult culture's calendar lines up with the church calendar. And Easter is one of those days. I mean, everybody is, is aware of Easter. Yes, they think of it as bunnies and eggs, Okay, and we think of it as Jesus coming out of the grave. So we got a little bit of a difference of message that we're sending on Easter. But still the day is the same. And we can leverage that fact and invite people to church. Surveys show that most people that you see every day, that you know, would accept an invitation to church if somebody just had the courage to ask them. And so on Easter we do something that we don't usually do. We have two services. You know why? Because we like the elbow room. No. It is not why we have two services. It's because we want to make more room for the people that you and I invite to Easter. Because we know that we have a, a beautiful opportunity, so let's make the most of it. And so why, rather than having one room to fill, we've got the space to fill two rooms. And one thing that's true about Easter is that everybody shows up at the same time. See, right now, this is not our whole church. Okay? People on church come about half the time-ish. Some are, you come more, some less, but, but when everybody shows up on the same day, we fill up the room, and then there's no room for the people that we need to invite, and so when we split our service in two, and we split, then we have about half a room, every service that we could invite people to. What a beautiful opportunity, and all it takes is, hey, why don't you come to church with me this Easter? You don't want to get up too early? Well, that's good for you. They've got a late service, and then they're hooked, because they if their excuse is, I don't want to get up early, you got them, right, because we could do a 1030 service on Easter. Um, if they say, well, you know, I was going to go out to breakfast. You know what? You can come to church for breakfast. We have a free breakfast on Easter. Hey, I mean, we want to make it easy for you to invite people to Easter. That's an opportunity that we have, okay? Um, another thing we're doing is we're going to help with our uh, community egg hunt. Uh, last year, we went out and we just offered a few games. I think it was like five little games. And for about 20 minutes, we just 
put up games and let kids just run around and play the different games, little egg tosses and whatnot, simple stuff. But it just made the egg hunt more than just a, like, 30-second scatter and grab. Okay, What's up with that? we wanted to have some time to play with the kids and get to know the kids. And it tells our community, hey, we care. We're here. We love you guys, and we want to invest in what's going on in this town, and we care about your kids. Um, another thing we've got coming up is VBS. That's coming up this summer. Uh, VBS is so cool this year, and I won't get into that just for the sake of time, but it is like one of the coolest themes they've ever had, and it provides an opportunity for more of you to help with VBS. And you think, but I don't want to be around kids. That's fine. We got so many things that, that you can do, and you don't have to ever see a kid for the most part if that's really what you're hoping for, okay? Hopefully some of you will be more kid-hearted, but I understand. I, I understand. I understand how that can go. So we got this amazing VBS thing that could be an opportunity to reach so many kids in town. And we have so many things. Um, the school, this is one that just kind of popped up. They're starting this thing they're calling uh, the Lunch Bunch. I don't know, has anybody heard about the Lunch Bunch? Okay, a few of you have. Basically, they're looking for people from the community to volunteer to go in whenever you can, whether it's once a month, twice a month, and you go in and you get paired with some kids and you just sit down and you just have lunch with them. And you hopefully help them say, hey, stop throwing those you know, rolls or whatever it is. But you kind of you help them eat better and, and try to tame down the chaos that might be there. But we get to go in, but they're inviting people from the community in to make relationships with kids. Do you know how rare that is in our, that, that we could go in there as believers? And we probably can't start telling them about Jesus, but we could get to know them so that when we're at a ball game or walking around the street and we see them, we can go, hey, I know you. you know? When they come to VBS, we can say, hey, we're so glad you're here, and they'll have somebody they know. I, saw, I heard a story this week of a church in Chicago, and this guy is head over heels in love with the Cubs and baseball. We have a few of you that are, I think, fall into that camp. Um, the number swelled a little bit last year, but that doesn't count, okay? Some of you aren't true believers. You're just excited uh, bandwagon hoppers, right? Um, but what this guy did, he said, I love baseball so much, and I love Jesus, and I love my church. So what he did was he got involved in one of the city leagues for kids in a rough neighborhood, and he said, I want to be a good influence to them. I want to love them for Jesus. And he went to his church, and some of the kids that he knew, he offered their family, said, hey, would you do this with me? Can your kids be on the team so that when I invite these kids to come to church, there will already be some friends here that they know, and they'll feel more comfortable coming to church here. He like, took his worlds and brought them together. He was leveraging his passion for baseball to reach kids in a rough life for Jesus. And I think, how many opportunities are there in our lives for that? And so that's what this series is going to be about. That's the calling that God has put onto our lives. And if there's anything I can get you to understand today, is that a calling is not an option. You understand that? A calling is God saying, you there, let's go. I got a, I got a job for you to do. God, if you are a believer, has put a calling in your life to use what he has given you for his glory and the good of those around you. So what will you do with what God has given to you? How will you leverage your one and only life for the amazing work of Christ? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day to come together. I thank you for this uh, powerful lesson. Man, I, I love the story of Bezalel and Aholiab and these guys that you grabbed out for a powerful work and you put a team together and you put a fire in the hearts of the people so that they might be able to serve you and do amazing things and change kind of the direction of Israel's history for generations. And then they drifted away because they were just regular people using their gifts and with being willing to be used by you. 
So I pray that we would look into our lives and think, what am I good at? Where has God gifted me? What are the things that he has put in my life, the talents and passions? And are there any ways that those could be used to reach other people? Thank you again for this wonderful, wonderful mission that you've invited us to play along with. You've invited us into something that is way, way bigger than ourselves, and we are incredibly, incredibly grateful for it. And so I pray that we would take this seriously, that we would all ask this question of ourselves, what will we do with what you, Father, have given to us? Thank you for that opportunity. It's such a task. It's such a challenge. But man, the fact that we have the opportunity to live a life of purpose is is so amazing. A life that makes an eternal difference. Thank you for allowing us to have a life that is so valuable. We pray all this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.